All right, y'all, welcome to the Scott Horton Show. I'm the director of the Libertarian Institute, editorial director of Antiwar.com, author of the book Fool's Errand, Time to End the War in Afghanistan, and the brand new Enough Already, Time to End the War on Terrorism. And I've recorded more than 5,500 interviews since 2003, almost all on foreign policy and all available for you at scotthorton.org. You can sign up for the podcast feed there. And the full interview archive is also available at youtube.com slash Scott Horton Show. Dave DeCamp, I've been traveling around the country for a week. I don't know what the hell is going on. You tell me, please. <laughs> Welcome to the show. Uh, everybody, it's Dave DeCamp. He's our news editor at antiwar.com. He's written 3,000 articles about what's going on. So that's why I'm asking him. Uh, catch me up to date on uh, Ukraine and Russia if you could. Maybe let's start with Lithuania closing the corridor to Danzig. I mean, to Kaliningrad <laughs> there. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for having me on, Scott. Um, I mean, this is a pretty big uh, escalation. Um, Lithuania decided to enforce EU sanctions on goods that travel to Kaliningrad, which is a Russian enclave on the Baltic Sea there that's between Lithuania and Poland. Um, and goods get, you know, it's Russian territory. It's like Alaska <laughs> is the United States. Um, so goods get there by rail through, they go through Belarus and then through Lithuania into Kaliningrad and also by ship um, through the Baltic Sea. And uh, Kaliningrad, they said, you know, they're enforcing EU sanctions on the territory now. And, and it's basically an embargo of uh, what officials, Kaliningrad officials say is about 50% of the goods that come in on rail is under sanctions, which right now includes coal, uh, things like uh, types of food, goods, uh, alcohol, caviar, um, steel too, which is a big one. And, uh, you know, it's set to expand as the, the EU is planning more sanctions on Russia. Um, so, you know, this kind of embargo. I'm sorry to interrupt, to, Dave, but what does that look like in practice? They're searching trains for contraband of these kinds of goods and saying, we'll let trains through carrying this, but not that. Or do you have yeah, like, I mean, reporting it, from there of how they're enforcing this? Uh, I haven't seen that yet, but from what I understand is that they're, they are going to do, you know, inspections of, uh, the trains and stuff, you know, similar to what they're doing with, uh, ships. No. And this is kind of an important point because all these sanctions that the U S and the EU have put on Russia, they technically have exemptions for things like grain fertilizer, but because every ship has to be stopped and inspected before going into or leaving a, a, a EU port. Um, you know, it slows everything down. So that's kind of a big, one of Russia's, you know, big gripes here is that, yeah, there's the exemptions. It's only applying to the goods under EU sanctions, but it's going to really slow everything down. And, uh, you know, Russia has threatened retaliation. Um, but um, Lithuania, it doesn't, it, they're, they're trying to resolve it diplomatically is what Russia is saying. The Kaliningrad governor sounds kind of optimistic that they're going to get an exemption for Kaliningrad and that things won't be interrupted. I don't know if it's really been enforced yet as of today, but um, yeah. And the retaliation that Russia might do, um, <laughs> the president of Lithuania says, oh, I don't think it's going to be military because, you know, we're, we're members of NATO, so we don't have to worry about that. I know. Um, I saw that in the New York Times. Just unbelievable. Uh, yeah. And by the way, you know, for people who, I'm sorry, I really should have explained better what the hell we're talking about here. Now that we're uh, three and a half minutes into the interview, I'm going to tell people, 
Leningrad is this little strip of land on the Baltic Sea between Lithuania and Poland and landlocked behind them away from Russia, even though it's sovereign Russian territory, this enclave, by what, three or four or 500 miles or something? Do you know how long it is? How far it is? Um, not exactly, no. That's somewhere uh, over 300 miles. And it's it's from Belarus. It's, it's not doesn't even border. It would be you know, from Belarus, not Russia. But, of course, Belarus is friends with Russia. So, mm. um, But, so, yeah. Now, by the way, going back to 1999, Pat Buchanan said that if we bring the Baltic states into NATO, then that means that Kaliningrad, from Russia's point of view, is stuck behind NATO lines. As you would say if you're talking about military engagements, right? The lines. And here they have, we have not just our friends, but our military allies now that uh, we have added this alliance in a way that has left this little piece of Russian territory on the Black Sea subject to exactly this kind of a threat. And then, as you were saying there when I interrupted you, the New York Times quotes the defense, it's not the, I don't think the defense minister, but deputy defense minister or somebody like that, saying, oh yeah, no, we would never do this if we weren't members of NATO. Or, or in fact, Russia won't do anything about it because we're members of NATO. Hey, if we weren't, they might. <laughs> mm-hmm. Which is just, yeah. the you know, that's said, what economists but... call a moral hazard. Mm-hmm. It's the kind of one that could get us all into a nuclear war. Yeah, and I mean, that's what uh, the U.S. is signing up for when they uh, grant uh, countries NATO membership is that, um, you know, we're going to come to their defense if, if they're attacked. And this is kind of just the result of that. Um, and it is really interesting. I mean, Kaliningrad, it always has the risk of being a big flashpoint because of its location. Um, and, and I mean, it sounds kind of silly, but picture Canada, you know, cutting off uh, the U.S. from Alaska, shipments of goods to Alaska. Um, you know, it's a huge uh, provocation, um, no matter uh, how you look at it. And, you know, Lithuania explains it. I say, oh, we're just enforcing EU sanctions. Um, we're not uh, it's not a blockade, as Russia calls it. Um, but again, it's going to really slow things down. Mm. Um and, and, and by the Ru- way, so the Russians are already retaliating with these cyber attacks, or at least allegedly, huh? Yeah, yeah. I saw that there's this, like, group that they say is Russian. I forget their name. Um, Don't tell this- me it's the Fancy Bear. <laughs> no, no, it's not Fancy Bear. But um, <laughs> it's like Killnet or something. It sounds a little ridiculous. But apparently they took credit for a cyber attack on Lithuania. But um, with the cyber stuff, it's really hard to know what's what's what. Um because it's not like right. The the from what I've read about this group, they just started these attacks since Russia invaded Ukraine, and they take credit for everything. But Russia hasn't uh, said anything about them. I don't think. I don't know if they've denied it. So I'm not really too sure um, what's going on with that group. But one one thing they could do is uh, Lithuania and uh, Estonia and Latvia, the Baltic states, that they're still on a power grid that's controlled by Russia. You know, left over from the Soviet Union days. Um, and Russia could cut them off of that, uh, which would be kind of a big deal, although they have an alternative setup to get hooked up to the EU's power grid, and they're trying to get on that by 2025 anyway. They have a plan to get off the Russian power grid, but, I mean, that would still definitely, uh, you know, uh, interrupt uh, a lot of things in the Baltics if Russia did kick them off that power grid. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I don't know how many people have read Pat Buchanan's book, but in uh, Churchill, Hitler, and the Unnecessary War, he says the cardinal sin here of Neville Chamberlain was not appeasing Hitler at Munich, where he didn't have, you know, the, the British didn't have any opportunity whatsoever to liberate Czechoslovakia, for crying out loud, um, or, you know, to stand in the way of Hitler moving into that part of Europe. Uh, but it was the emotional overreaction when Hitler betrayed Chamberlain that he then handed this war guarantee to Poland. And I don't know if the Poles would have negotiated a corridor, this easement to the former German city of Danzig there, or whether maybe they still would not have negotiated that. Uh, but once the British handed them a war guarantee, then they told Hitler... Screw you, man. The British have our back now, and so you can't have your corridor to your city. And I'm not saying that that would have been the magic solution to the Hitler problem or anything, but what I am saying is that that's what caused the war because he went ahead and invaded all of Poland, or half of it, uh, to get to Danzig instead of just taking that corridor. And then Britain and France declared war. And, you know, the whole thing... Uh, in fact, he went west before he got around to fighting the communists, which he ended up turning around doing anyway. So mm -hmm. um, these kinds of decisions, you know, they seem to be made. In fact, at the time, he says the foreign minister, Lord Gray, said that Chamberlain should have been locked in an insane asylum. He said, how could you have done this? What the hell are you doing? You know, imagine Joe Biden gives a war guarantee to whoever next. Maybe he adds Ukraine to NATO right now. And his own secretary of state is going, you can't do that. You know what I mean? Something that outrageous, that, you know, obviously mistaken in policy. Politicians will make choices like that. And it sounds like, you know, where, for example, our Lord Gray, Anthony Blinken, ought to be telling the Lithuanians to back down and don't do that. <laughs> he's seemingly not. Mm -hmm. You know, I, he's probably the one encouraging them to do all this in the first place. And these Democrats, boy, they're proving what tough guys they are, but they sure are threatening the rest of us, it seems like. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the Baltic states and Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, and also Poland, you know, they've been incredibly hawkish uh, during this whole war and uh, really ramped up their military. I mean, especially Poland. They sent them, like, over 200 uh, tanks to Ukraine. Um, and they don't want negotiations. They want... You know, Russia to be defeated is what they're saying. Um, and these are all people that we, you know, gave a war guarantee to. So, yeah. In fact, isn't it right, Dave, the, the April 5th quote in the Washington Post where they said they don't want the war to end too quickly? They were really referring to Eastern European NATO member states saying that, right? Yeah. So the so, it said for some in NATO, and the some are Eastern, most Eastern European states there. Yeah. Uh, and the UK and the United States are the most hawkish. And it's a little split when you have, uh, France and, uh, Germany, um, are, we're kind of calling more for negotiations than, um, it seems like they've kind of backed off on that lately. Uh, and that everybody seems full steam ahead again. Um, you had Draghi, the Italian prime minister and Schultz, uh, the German chancellor and Macron, the German, uh, French president, they recently visited Kiev and, you know, told Zelensky 
they had, all of them said, oh, yeah, we won't pressure you, Ukraine to negotiate or anything. They kind of like went there to kiss the ring and said, uh, pledge more weapons and stuff. You know, hopefully behind the scenes, they're still pushing for negotiations. But, you know, it seems like they came under a lot of pressure to, to do that. Yeah. All right. Now, um, can you tell me about this thing from the New York Times about the CIA and the extent of, as you put it on Twitter this morning, the extent of the admission? I think we all knew. I'm not sure if you and mm-hmm. I talked about this on the show or not, but of course the CIA is there. It's obvious that, you know, maybe they would have pulled out when the war first started, but once it was clear the Russians were not marching immediately all the way to Moldova or something like that, then obviously they've been in the West coordinating the mm-hmm. arms and whatever else. And they're, you know, the Yahoo News stories and others where they're bragging about, you know, the extent of their role on the ground since 2015. So, or 14. Yeah. So, um, but so what is it that they told the New York Times? Because I haven't had a chance to read it yet. Yeah, well, um, so again, this this wasn't really a surprise. Um, according to this report citing uh, U.S. and European officials, uh, CIA personnel have, it said that some have continued to operate in the country. Um, you mentioned that Yahoo News report that detailed uh, how the U.S. had CIA personnel deployed in eastern Ukraine since 2014, uh, helping train Ukrainian forces fighting the separatists in Donetsk and Luhansk. That report said that they left right before the invasion, um, but this suggests that they might have just went, you know, to western Ukraine and waited it out for a bit. It says that they're mostly in Kiev, and that they're directing uh, what they call a vast amount of intelligence that the U.S. is sharing with Ukrainian forces. Um, so we know that they've been providing them with, you know, satellite imagery and stuff to target Russian forces. You know, they've been bragging about it to the media that they've helped them kill Russian generals and sink sh- Russian ships. We don't know how true all these claims are. But again, it's kind of like what it, they're putting this out there for for a reason. And this also says that um, a few dozen commandos from Britain, France, Canada and Lithuania, you know, special operations forces uh, have also been working in Ukraine and and they're kind of coordinating the weapons shipments and stuff. And I'm sure the CIA there is involved in that too. It says the U.S. special operations forces that were in Ukraine, you know, they were pulled out, and they're mostly in Germany and France right now. Also, but also, you know, they're training Ukrainian troops and stuff and coordinating the deliveries. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's it's not a surprise, but it's it, there's a reason why they put this story in the New York Times. Um, and if you go lower in the article you see uh, it starts to quote former officials that say it's not really doing much to help pretty much is what they're saying is that the ukraine they need artillery training and that the cia personnel aren't really doing that um and i watched uh, the liberty report earlier today with uh, ron paul and dan mcadams and dan mcadams his kind of analysis of it was that uh they are saying that you know we're doing all this to help Ukraine, but it's not really working because it, as the article opens, is that Russia is still making gains in the war in the East. Um, and, you know, his analysis was that they want to change in policy, which is why they put this in, in here. Um, but uh, it's tough to say. I mean, also, this does contradict I'm sorry, just, other... just so I understand you right, he's saying that mm-hmm. they put this in here because essentially they're saying we've gone too far and so now we're publicly admitting it so now we have a reason that we need to scale back our effort here because we've kind of painted ourselves into this corner yeah yeah either that 
or or they need to escalate in another way. Yeah, <laughs> is what is what they're hinting at here, right? Um, and it also contradicted. Uh, I think it was maybe it was this month. There was another New York Times report that said that the U.S. didn't have a good picture of what was going on in the ground in Ukraine. That Ukraine wasn't sharing them with their operation. Right. You know, their and there was the story plans. too about Biden contradicting Blinken and Austin, telling them to chill out on all their threats about how they're trying to hurt Russia and all that stuff. Which is obviously not true, but the, it raises the question, why do they put that story out there? Yeah. Seems like they're like preparing the ground for a little bit of backpedaling here. Yeah. And and that seemed like the one, the earlier report that said that they didn't have a picture of Ukraine and that Ukraine wasn't sharing information might have kind of been a, an excuse to set, like, to set up for when this all fails and, you, and Russia wins the war in the Donbass. They could, you know, they're, they're going to try to blame it on Ukraine probably, on Zelensky. Um, so yeah. And I mean, this report also says that Russia understands the CIA is there, which I'm sure that they do. Um, so it's not like they're going to find out from this report, but it's also, you know, it's kind of rubbing their noses in it. And it, 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 it with a, like a lot of these things, it's really, right. you know, how far are we going to keep pushing them? Um, you know, over the weekend we saw a bunch of airstrikes in, uh, Kiev and other areas of Ukraine that haven't really been getting hit. And, uh, you know, Russia said that they would do that in response to the U.S. sending these new uh, rocket systems, um, the high mobility artillery rocket system that the U.S. just started sending them. And uh, they arrived in Ukraine the other day and, you know, Russia launched a bunch of airstrikes across the country. Um, So... Yeah, and you know they're not going to help. They might help a little bit. I'm not really sure. I, I'm not enough of a military analyst to say. Uh, so far, the U.S. has sent four of these systems. Ukraine says they need like 300 to win the war. So, you know, they still have to train them. According to the Pentagon, they've only trained 60 Ukrainian soldiers how to use these things. I mean, it's it's not. It could have an impact in the long run, but right now, with the fighting in the east, it's it's not going to have much of an impact. Yeah. Um, So, you know, I don't know if you heard my last interview with Doug McGregor where I asked him, I think it was in response to my question, well, geez, you know, the Russians took Kharkiv and then they backed off. And so it was like a major loss for them and the Ukrainians are on the march, right? And he says, no. And you misunderstand what's going on here. What's going on here is they're destroying the Ukrainian military, not necessarily just battling for land. And once it's good and destroyed, then they'll take whichever land they feel like they need to take to secure the independence of the Donbass and whatever is the extent of their goal. And he thinks that they're doing well enough that they're expanding their goals. I mean, the Americans just seem to make up their own timetables for what the Russians are doing and how they're so far behind schedule. But I don't know. McGregor seems to think that eventually they'll go all the way to Moldova and, you know, reintegrate the Transdenistra there or... They always change how you're supposed to say it. I don't know. You used to have a D in it, damn it. But um, uh, uh, Transnistria, I guess they call it now, right, or something? I don't know. Yeah, that's what I I mean, hear. these are all, it's always anglicizing these other cultures' words anyway, so who cares? Point is, that little strip of land between Moldova and Ukraine that belongs to Russia, which is pretty damned inconvenient. So, or I don't know, it's not like... Um, it's not exactly like Kaliningrad where they outright own it, but it's a breakaway province that swears its loyalty mm-hmm. to Russia kind of a thing. So so anyway, uh, I don't know uh, you know how much difference these 
you know, new shipments of arms the Americans are sending is going to make if the Ukrainians are just running out of guys. Uh, seems like at the end of the day, there's always going to be more Russians, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, so let me ask you, is there any kind of developments, important developments in diplomacy, at least with the Europeans? I know Blinken still ain't been to Geneva, but, um, you know, for a while there, the French president was trying to talk to Putin sometimes and this kind of thing. Is there anything going on at all? Uh, not really. Uh, Macron and Schultz, they both talked to Putin a couple weeks ago. Um, but, you know, they've been making a call to him every few weeks or every month or so, it seems like. But there hasn't been any progress, uh, I don't think, in the diplomacy side. You know, the U.S. has shown no interest in uh, resuming uh, arms control talks because Russian officials have been saying that they should they should start talking about a replacement of New START, which is the last nuclear arms control treaty between the U.S. and Russia. But the U.S. is showing no signs of kind of separating that from the war in Ukraine and having negotiations there. Uh, and then when it comes to the war in Ukraine, I mean, they've put virtually no effort into negotiating with Russia. Blinken still hasn't talked to Lavrov um, since February, and Biden has no plans to speak with Putin uh, that I've seen. Uh, so... You know, and as you mentioned, McGregor and Russia's goals kind of expanding. And I mean, that's, you know, what I think we're going to see now because of that initial period in the war where there was real talks going on uh, in Russia. Russia's demands was independence for the Donbass, which, you know, is kind of de facto annexation uh, and Ukraine dropping its claim to Crimea. Well, now, you know, months later, you got Zelensky still saying he's going to drive Russia out of Crimea and out of the Donbass. And, uh, but Russia controls a lot more territory and not just in the Donbass. They also control, uh, Kherson, uh, which is just North of Crimea. I would guess if by looking at the map, it's about 70% that Russia controls and Zaporizhia, which is the, the oblast to the East of Kherson. And then that connects to Donetsk and Luhansk. Um, so they have, they control all this territory now. And the the military administrations that they've put in power in, in Kherson and Zaporizhia, they're they're saying we're going to have a referendum for annexation. Now it's in their interest to be annexed, the, the people that they put in charge of this Russian occupied territory, because if Ukraine comes back in there, they're going to have to flee. <laughs> but you know, that's just what we're looking at now. Now instead of just the Donbass and just Crimea, you know, Russia has all holds all these other cards. And with the Ukrainian side not showing any interest in negotiating, why would they stop now? Uh, you know, it just seems like they have every interest to keep going. And it's it's a, a really brutal war. You know, I mean, the death toll is is really high, it seems like, because it's just basically an artillery battle on the ground. And uh, so it seems like it's going to keep going on for a long time. Hang on just one second. Hey, y'all, they've got great deals on weed at thehempspot.com. The Hemp Spot specializes in Delta-8 tetrahydrocannabinol instead of Delta-9, so they can send it straight to you anywhere in America. Recently, a friend moved and didn't have a guy in his new town, but then he heard about thehempspot.com on my show and was saved, figuratively and literally, because if you use the promo code SCOTT, you get 15% off every order and free shipping on any order over $100. Legal jams, bud, gummies, and the rest in your state. Thehempspot.com. Spell V-T-H-C. 
You guys, my friend Mike Swanson has written such a great revisionist take on the early history of the post-World War II national security state and military-industrial complex in the Truman, Eisenhower, and Kennedy years. It's called The War State. I have to say, it's the most convincing case I've read that Kennedy had truly decided to end the Cold War before he was killed. In any case, I know you'll love it. The War State by Mike Swanson. Some of y'all have a problem. You've got chickens, but you don't want to stand around throwing food at them all day because of all the important stuff you have to do. Well, the solution to that is to get the Free Range Feeder from FreeRangeFeeder.com. The Free Range Feeder has been developed to satisfy the needs of the poultry, chicken hobbyist, and the homesteader. The convertible design allows for four different mounting methods. Go to FreeRangeFeeder.com Scott or use promo code Scott to get 15% off and get the free ebook. Subscribe to their newsletter to immediately receive your free copy of Getting Started with Backyard Chickens. That's freerangefeeder.com slash Scott. Yeah. All right. Now, um, talk about the politics going on with uh, Sweden and Finland joining NATO and the Turks' intervention there. I know there's a bunch of angles on this, but I just have to say this, man, that I don't know what was going on with Putin. Sorry if I'm repeating myself from an earlier show. Seemed like maybe he was on muscle relaxers or something. I was just reading it. I don't know. I don't speak Russian. I didn't see the video. <laughs> but the statement was like, yeah, no, I don't even care at all if Sweden and Finland join NATO. We don't have any problems with them whatsoever. We never will again either <laughs> or something. We got a 900-mile border with Finland, and we like them, and we have zero problems at all, and so why the hell not? And I thought, is that a real quote? Are you kidding me? In the middle of this war, he said that. I don't know if he's really sick like they say, but I think he was high that day. But um, anyway, I don't know. I guess he meant that. Or do you know, did Lavrov walk that back? <laughs> like they do with Joe Biden? He didn't mean that. <laughs> that kind of thing. Or how did well, that play out? Do you know? From that, I think that quote, I think in the same sentence or maybe uh, in the same answer or speech or whatever, whenever he said that, he said that they'll respond. What they're worried about is an expansion of NATO military infrastructure and that they'll respond to that. I see. Um, because Yo, I've yeah, seen that's an Russian important officials. clarification, by the way. Yeah. And we saw what yeah. happened when Bill Clinton promised in 1997 that we'll never move the equipment into the East. We're just asking them into the alliance. And then when Putin brings up 1997, everyone's like, 1997? What is that freak talking about? You know? <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's the thing. I've seen that kind of talking point from other Russian officials. Uh, you know, at first, when they were talking about Finland and Sweden joining NATO, they were given all these these really strong warnings. But I saw uh, Dmitry Medvedev, who the former president, who's mm -hmm. on the he's the deputy head of the Security Council now. You know, he said Finland and Sweden and NATO. It means you know we're going to put more troops on Finland's border. Uh, you know, he hinted at possible nuclear deployments in the Baltics, which is uh, you know hints at Kaliningrad. Um, but he also said you know we. We don't look at uh, Finland and Sweden joining NATO as the same threat as Ukraine because we don't have territorial disputes with them. So it's not the same. So it's not as much of a threat. But we will respond by, you know, positioning more military assets in the region. So I think that is kind of their stance. Um, now, they would definitely rather them not join NATO. And uh, now we can get into the Turkey's objection because it seems like they're really uh, – 
threw a wrench into the works there because uh, before when they were deciding to join, I mean, you had Stoltenberg, the head of NATO, and Blinken, all these Western officials just saying, oh, yeah, if they're going to, you know, they're going to apply. We're going to let them in. It's going to be quick and it's going to be great. <laughs> and then uh, when they uh, formally applied, Turkey blocked. They were going to hold talks on it as an alliance to kind of fast track it. And Turkey blocked it. And um, they've, their object, they, they object to their membership over Sweden and Finland's kind of ties to Kurdish groups. Um, uh, you know, they say that they have ties with the PKK, which I'm not too sure. The PKK is a, it's a Kurdish militant group in Turkey that Turkey, as well as the EU and the U.S., consider to be a terrorist organization. And then they have their affiliates in northeast mm-hmm. Syria that the U.S. backs. Um, so I'm not sure exactly you know, what these ties are between the government and the PKK, or what Turkey exactly alleges. But um, there is support you know, for for these Kurds that Turkey fights in Northeast Syria, Sweden and Finland put sanctions on Turkey in 2019 when they uh, launched the assault in, against the Kurds in Northeast Syria. Um, so Turkey wants that lifted and they want them to amend their, their laws. Cause apparently these Kurdish groups uh, affiliated with the PKK have like rallies and stuff in, in Sweden and Finland, I think more so Sweden and they want, uh, you know, laws to, they want them to strengthen their counterterrorism laws so that that can't happen. I know that's one aspect of it. Um, and then this was all pretty. This is was complicated in in Sweden uh, earlier this month. The Swedish government um, to survive a no confidence vote, uh, they needed the support of a Kurdish MP in the Swedish government. She's Swedish, but she's of Kurdish Iranian heritage. Um, they needed her vote to survive. The, the Social Democrats that are the make up the ruling government in Sweden, and this Kurdish MP wanted a guarantee that they wouldn't uh, give in to Turkey's demands to join NATO, and also wanted them to express their support for a PKK affiliate in Syria, the, the Democratic Union Party, um, and I that they're associated with the S the US backed SDF in Northeast Syria. Um, so that kind of really has complicated uh, S- Sweden's efforts to join. Um, if their their government it really is uh, reliant on this one Kurdish MP to kind of survive now. Um, but you know things can change quick. The government can change. Uh, but it definitely uh, you know it's not um, Stoltenberg is still kind of trying to say that Oh, we're gonna get. They're gonna figure this out, but it it seems like it's it's much more complicated than they than they let on initially. Yeah. By the way, I don't know if you saw this from Defense One, NATO to approve biggest overhaul of defense since the Cold War. Stoltenberg says the Rapid Response Force is to grow from forty thousand to three hundred thousand troops. Yeah, I I was just reading that before we uh, before you called me. Um, yeah, and the, they're saying that they're going to increase uh, forces in the in the Baltic states to, to a brigade size, which is about five thousand troops. Um, now, this rapid response force, they said that they uh, they haven't. I think it was formed in two thousand and two, and it hasn't been activated until recently when Russia invaded. And by activating it, it's basically just putting these troops on standby. 
Um, and some of them were deployed to Europe as the U.S. and NATO allies kind of reinforced what they call their eastern flank there in Poland and Baltics and Romania and stuff. Um, so increasing that force to over 300,000, I mean, does that? I guess that means that NATO has a uh, huge force that it can deploy, you know, at, at any time. Um, so it's definitely uh, not a good sign. I mean, this is what, you know, you read all these reports and they say, oh, I read this in the New York Times today. They said, before Russia invaded Ukraine, many asked if NATO still should exist. Well, now it's clear that they should exist. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> something like that. So, Of course. It's perfect, isn't it? That's yeah. why they call it a self-licking ice cream cone. Hey, look. Mm. We made a mess. Now we got a job cleaning up the mess we made. It's great. And we don't have to give real jobs. That's yeah. implicit in all of this. You know what I mean? Mm. Nobody wants to really work for a living and they can get away with it. Well, be a bureaucrat. You make a ton <laughs> yeah. of money. Especially when you retire and go sit on the board of directors of a defense firm. Um, and, you know, I quote in Fool's Aaron, how they talked openly about how the war in Afghanistan was a team-building exercise for NATO. You know, um, they go out of area or out of business, as they said in the 90s. And so this is something that we can do together, Dave. See, <laughs> just like in my Twitter feed this morning, I'm telling everybody opposing the war in Yemen. This is something we can all do together. Come on. You know, that's how they feel about it, mm -hmm. about waging a war in Yemen or in Libya or in Afghanistan or in Eastern Europe. This is what makes us who we are, that we do these things together, wage these wars. And, you know, the relative danger, I don't even think they're considering, you know, the, the threat of war breaking out full scale across Europe or even including nuclear war. Uh, I don't think they're thinking about that. It's all just, you know, uh, more parochial yeah, incentives at play, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it doesn't seem like anybody, any of them are thinking about the threat of nuclear war, because if they were, then they uh, would be taking a very different approach. But yeah, They don't say a word about it, right? Just, it just goes without saying that that could never happen, so shut up. You sound like a kook, dude. You don't want to yeah. sound like a kook, do you? Exactly. And now with NATO, the, they're supposed to announce that big increase uh, at the summit this week in Madrid, um, and they're also going to release a new strategic concept, they call it, that they release about every 10 years. And this one's going to name uh, China as a threat to the alliance. So the North Atlantic Alliance is looking at moving into the Asia Pacific. Um, you know, and we've seen them, they've put out statements on China over the past couple of years, uh, starting really in 2020. And um, they, um, you know, they want to increase cooperation with Japan and Australia and South Korea and um, it looks like they're eyeing a similar buildup, at least the U.S. definitely is, in, in that area, in Southeast Asia, um, to surround China, as they did with Russia. We saw what, how that ended up. Yeah. Um, listen, uh, we got to talk about antiwar.com. Speaking of team building, we're running <laughs> out of money. We need more money. And we got a really great team. You know, we got Dave and Jason uh, holding down the... Uh, news section but of course kyle and uh will porter and uh connor freeman who are you know working at the institute we're kind of trading employees and and mm -hmm. uh 
people around trying to keep everybody working here, reprinting your stuff there and reprinting our stuff there and this and that. Anyway, uh, point is, we got uh, Dave and we got Jason and we got Kyle Anzalone, our great opinion editor, who's doing my job better than I ever did. And although I was really good at it, but he's great, man. And uh, of course, Eric and Angela and the whole crew that runs the place and uh, Margaret Griffiths for, you know, all our great Iraq coverage and uh, help me out because I'm probably leaving out. Of course, you know, all our great writers, um, our, our in-house columnists and all that. But who, who's on the staff that I didn't say, dude? Kick me. Um, Brandon and Mike cover- and the guys that run the, the website. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I think you covered everybody there, Margaret and Angela. Angela Keaton, she's a real big help because she uh, she does a lot of the fundraising, which is, to me, like the hardest part of of uh, working for antiwar.com is every uh, quarter about we have to you know do this big fundraiser um, because that's the only way we could really keep the independent line that we have and and give people the news and and opinions from this non-interventionist point of view. You know, there's not much money in in having uh, in in what we do in uh, our editorial line, um, so we rely on our readers and supporters to get by. And um, you mentioned the staff, and then we've had a pretty serious lineup of columnists lately. Um, we got Doug Bandow, Ted Snyder, Ramsey Baroud, who you just interviewed, um, and we have Daniel Larison, a new edition. Ray McGovern has been writing a ton of stuff for us. Uh, Ted Carpenter. Um, so it's a pretty stocked lineup. Yeah, um, and I'm really excited about having Doug and Ted here because, um, well, and Ted Snyder, of course, too, is great, our Canadian friend. But Ted Snyder, I mean, uh, uh, Ted Carpenter, uh, Ted Galen Carpenter, and Doug Bandow are the two best guys at Cato and have been for a very, very long time. And so for people on the outside of the movement, they don't know, but this is a, a very nice thing for the old libertarian civil wars to fizzle out and smooth over and be cool in this new era that we're all getting along so well. And, you know, our former staffer, John Glazer, works at Cato and uh, in their foreign policy department, and we got their two best guys writing for us. So, And I just absolutely worship both of those guys. They're both so great. And, you know, Doug's, I don't know about Ted, I know Doug's been around the world 10 times or whatever. He's been to North Korea twice. It's been all over Asia and Africa and the Middle East and Europe and wherever else. What I leave out? I'm sure he's at least been on vacation in Australia. It's been <laughs> everywhere, man, like Johnny Cash. Yeah. Um, and, and yeah, as you said, Ramsey Baroud, our brilliant Palestinian uh, refugee and intellectual and author and scholar and brilliant guy and wonderful guy and, and all of our great uh, writers. I mean, the whole thing. Um, it's the best... It's the most important project on the internet. That's why I've been part of it since about 2004, whatever it is. As soon as I started the show in the spring of 2003, first person I interviewed was Alan Bach, author of the Eye on the Empire column for Antiwar.com back then, who sadly died in, I'm going to say 2012 or 13, um, but who was a wonderful man. And, um, and so, yeah, man, uh, I had no problem whatsoever hitching my wagon right to what Eric Garris and Justin Romando were doing back then. And I'm proud that I'm the editorial director now and um, get to play a role in this thing. And people should know that your dollars are being spent very wisely here. None of us are making a fat salary or a 401k program or a chauffeur-driven limousine around town or any of these things <laughs> like a lot of these nonprofit organizations in your imagination. And you know, when I first heard of the Randolph Bourne Institute, 
He sounded like some billionaire, right? Oh, wow, some rich guy gave some libertarians a bunch of money to have an anti-war website. Yeah, no, he was an anarchist who died penniless of the Woodrow Wilson flu back in 2000, I mean, uh, 1916 um, or, or 18 and did not bequeath us a nickel. <laughs> um, he's just, uh, you know, a guiding light because he wrote the great essay, The State, the unfinished essay, The State, and the uh, most important part of which is the war. Oh, yeah, it would be nice if I said it right. War is the health of the state, which, of course, uh, is our slogan and kind of our guiding principle here as anti-war libertarians. So, yeah, man, I don't know. Everywhere I go, people tell me how much they appreciate me, which actually I only go where people appreciate me, so I don't know. <laughs> but um, for those of you who think that antiwar.com is important, for those of you who, like me, can't do without Jason Ditz and um, Dave DeCamp and the re- you know Kyle and the rest of the group there, then you know how it is. It's the funniest thing, isn't it? A bunch of libertarian capitalists. We all run nonprofit organizations. We can't charge prices at the door. We run off donations. It's a weird kind of funny sort of paradox, but that's because of our tax system in America. It is what it is. <laughs> so that's what we do. We run off the of donations and uh, and we're not making banks. So you can um, feel like you're helping people just barely get by to do this important work the way they should be, frankly. Um, and, and that is exactly what it is. You know, paying the light bill and, and staying alive and, and doing okay and that's it. So... Um, and, and a lot of times, not even that, and I'm pretty sure I'm about to get laid off. But I'm the editorial director, so I'm just going to do that for free anyway, because what the hell do I care? I'll figure it out. But uh, even if I do get laid off, we still that's not going to cover it. <laughs> we got a budget <laughs> deficit, man. We need y'all to dig deep and support antiwar.com. And I'm sorry Justin's not here. Oh, in fact, today's the day. It's the third anniversary of Justin dropping dead. I'm sorry. Rest in peace. Wow, it's today, huh? Uh, to old Justin Romando and and everybody who ain't never read him, go and read everything he ever wrote. Start in '99 and work forward from there. Uh, he was our founding editorial director and head writer for 20 years, and uh, from '99 through '19, and Murray Rothbard's heir in non-interventionist foreign policy, and so that's the legacy that we're trying to continue here. I think we're doing a pretty damn good job. I'm very proud of your work, man. I saw your tweet the other day. You've done 3,000 interviews. And, you know, round of applause sound effect here. You uh, really deserve it, man. And I sure appreciate it. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. I mean, you helped me out when I first started writing uh, for antiwar.com. You spent a lot of time on the phone with me, helping me out, make it better. So I have a... I uh, have to thank you. And, you know, just to say, uh, Eric Garris, who runs the site, a lot of people... Uh, don't realize that he, you know, he's the one that's really uh, running everything. Um, right. I mean, he, the amount of hours that he puts into this site, um, you know, he founded it with Justin. Him and Justin were best friends. Um, you know, he's got tons of great stories about his activism when he used to be involved in politics with in the LP and the Republican Party and all these stories about Murray Rothbard. And, you know, he's somebody that... Uh, you know, well, more people just understand that he's the kind of driving force behind all this. And uh, I have to thank him for uh, giving me this job. And uh, so we have to work to, you know, earn money for it and keep it going. Um, 
And like I said, it's that's the hardest part. Uh, you know, writing the articles, like you, you mentioned, uh, I've written over 3,000 since I started full-time in September 2020. So I think that's that's pretty good. They're, they're short news articles, but uh, that still shows how much work we put into this. Um, and yeah, I think I've told you before, I took about, when I took this job, I took about a $40,000 pay cut from my old career. Um, so that shows that that's how kind of passionate we are. Um, we're not in it to make money because if we were, we'd be doing something else. <laughs> yeah, seriously. I could think of a few other jobs I'd rather have in other circumstances, but uh, it is what it is. And, you know, for those of us with the x-ray eyes, as I was taught, we kind of owe it to everybody else to help them understand what the hell is going on around here. You're doing a great job of that. That's the purpose of the site. If you appreciate it, it's antiwar.com slash donate. There's a phone number there if you need to call Angela Keaton and talk about financial arrangements, whatever it is, uh, details. Um, and then, of course, we take all your cryptocurrencies and all those wonderful things. So thank you, everybody. Appreciate it. And thank you, Dave, for your time on the show again. Thanks, Scott. The Scott Horton Show and Anti-War Radio can be heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in L.A. APSradio.com, antiwar.com, scotthorton.org and libertarianinstitute.org.